Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And today we'll have the second part of the talk by PhD candidate and journalist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis of the history of Argentina in South America. Then on to anti-war activist Kathy Kelly wearing yet another hat or hats with the US Peace Memorial Foundation and World Without War. Humphrey McQueen, historian and author, goes back to 1962 with the war between China and India. But who invaded who? And finally to Nick McClellan, we're told that China is moving into the Pacific in a big way, but nowhere near what Australia is up to in the Pacific. But first let's go to Mr Kevin Healy and I can imagine what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when the awful thought, if we think it's already unbearable, it's going to get worse. There's been nothing else. Even the news services just repeat the in-between news service wall to wall with no other news. Nothing else has happened in the whole world. And as I said, it's going to get much, much more unbearable. When they get round to the coronation of our new king, his most gracious majesty, it'll be like a flying crown. Trillions of dollars in jewels with these two big ears sticking out. I was taken by a crowd outside Buckingham Palace singing, God save the Queen, long may she reign over us. And I thought, interesting, seeing she was now dead. Although I was deeply moved by a Church of England vicar who said his wife and he had picked up the kids from swimming lessons when they heard the funereal music and realised, oh no, and they decided that instead of going home and praying by their bedside, they would go to the palace and pray there. How beautiful, how very beautiful. One bit of advice, though, for governments or corporations who want to bury bad news, release the reports in the next several days or weeks, and no one will ever know. Now to the serious news, the very stuff of the week that was. As the government applauds the success of getting caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers together, two of the architects of the 80s Accord, the world's greatest, worst ex-treasurer, Paul, and then ACTU Secretary, little Billy, killed them, have there ever been two greater fighters for working people, have come out with strong views about the better off overall test the boot. Obviously, they oppose changes that would make any worker worse off, I hear. No, not quite. They, they oppose it because it won't make workers worse off. I myself have negotiated deals which left some people worse off. Little Billy boasted. But he pointed out because the deals led to productivity improvements, which doubtless he would have supported following consultations with his very, very close corporate mates like Transport Behemoth Lindsay Trucks. Thus, he said, by making some workers worse off, improvements were fairly shared. Well, yes, presumably between the caring employers and the caring employers. Not sure the some workers worse off would have seen themselves sharing the improvements. In an interview for the 30th anniversary of Compulsory Super, Paul and Little Billy described themselves as, wait for it, revolutionaries. Oh, listener, but that they were. Revolutionaries who confronted and defeated the Marxist left. There. Revolutionaries who saw the Marxist left as the enemy. Revolutionaries boasting they did deals with caring employers to make workers worse off. Revolutionaries who opposed the boot scheme because it doesn't make workers worse off. 
Still, little Billy didn't need to tell us he sold workers down the drain. That's why the week that was always spoke so highly of him way back then. As his legacy and Paul's legacy can be seen in the spectacular decline of trade union membership since they stitched up the accord and the then huge unionised workforce with it, with friends like. Thirty years on, big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi declared he supported great trooper Washington resource giants extracting and exporting as much coal and gas as they can, taking advantage of record prices generating record profits. But with the rider that we could extract and export as much as we like while addressing climate change. No, I've got no idea either, listener. Must say, if Anthony hadn't assured us there is no contradiction, we might have thought there was a slight problem. But no, Anthony assures us polluting to our heart's content is part of our commitment to reducing polluting to our heart's content. Anthony the magician. And he obviously thought we didn't need an explanation, and anyway, the proof is in the bottom line. Whitewash Haven Coal, for instance, announced a 2,300% profit, real figure, increase to $2 billion. While all the other great responsible resource giants also announced huge profits, which are just so good for the country. I'm sure we're all feeling heaps better off although perhaps not quite so good for the environment. Well, the natural environment, but so what? It's good for the only environment that matters. And our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, has urged Woodside with profits to reach an agreement with Timor Leste to open up yet another gas venture, which will also do wonders for the environment. And true to form, former Minister for Fossils Angus Tailings, now caring Christmas class big economic guru, offered wise advice for the socialists to save money thanks to the huge debt it inherited from his lot. Abandon plans to waste money on new transmission lines which would facilitate the access of renewable energy into the grid. A leopard never changes. And wasting resources on renewables would be a threat to fossils. And we now know fossils are the clean solution to fossils. And we can't think of a much bigger fossil than Angus. Anyway, even if extracting and exporting and utilising our heart's content doesn't quite help in addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, no worries. We could always plant a few trees out the back of barley somewhere and problem solved. Following that 2,300% profit increase, we asked Big Fossil Whitewash Haven Coal what huge pay increase it would obviously now give its workers, but sadly it turned out it was not that obvious. Well, one thing was obvious. Obviously, Whitewash Haven stated the obvious. Now is not the time to be asking for a pay rise. Do they want to set back the recovery? The evil unions think we are made of money. Bad luck, but the good news is caring employers will tell us when the time is right. A 2,300% profit increase just isn't quite enough or time enough. Although justifying pouring heaps more profits into the coppers of the big four, the banks, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe Wages for You said one justification for another rate rise was incomes are rising, which would have been a bit of a surprise to families attempting to balance the bank screaming out for the spiralling mortgage payments against feeding and clothing themselves and the kids or seeking and paying for health care in our free health system. 
Unfortunately for them, Philip Low Wages Force says that the rising incomes were a major problem. A workers must be prepared to accept very difficult cuts to real wages over the next 12 months because the alternative would be far worse. Direct quote. Far worse than starving to death in a comfortable little gutter somewhere. The clue is for the parents to cuddle up really closely with the kids tucked up between them to keep the kids warm at night. Fortunately, on the positive side, Philip clearly doesn't see any problems with a 2,300% profit increase, presumably as long as lazy Aborigines workers don't try to take advantage of it by not taking a wage cut. And he did say, very difficult wage cut. See? Empathy. Sit down, listener, this is going to shock you. The Trubler was Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC, after conducting an industry-wide review, concluded, insurers have not done enough to put customers first. <laughs> Goodness me, doesn't that come like a bolt from the blue? Who would have thought? Don't think it needs any further comment. See where a house in Lismore inundated with the woman occupier having to take refuge on the roof from which she was airlifted by a helicopter had her insurance claim rejected because the insurance company declared roof damage was caused by the helicopter. Apparently all the flood damage below the roof didn't count, leaving us to ponder what the hell ASIC's talking about. In the week that was sport, a bag of white powder trumps sexism, misogyny, domestic violence and sexual assault. As one woman commented this week, Channel 7, The Age and a couple of good sports radio outlets were quite happy to honour sexism, misogyny, domestic violence and sexual assault. Just one of the boys apparently, but a bag of white powder landing on a casino table, too much for them. Thus, Wayne Tits Caress has been stood aside pending. But if the pending turns out to be even inconclusive, we assume he'll be back, because what's wrong with a sexist, misogynist, domestic violence, sexual assaulter? Apparently, his value to those corporations also trumps all the aforementioned. I've mentioned before, even though I have the ABC radio sound on for the footy, when he's on the screen, I simply have to turn it off. And while Trublowazis were apparently supporting another charmer, the tennis brat who smashes rackets, abuses everybody in the stadium, including his own support team, no idea why they put up with it. Well, I do, other than he, he makes lots of money and they get a percentage, spits at spectators and spits the most cruel and vile and hurtful comments across the net about his opponents. Let's remind ourselves... Next month, he's due to appear in a Canberra court on a charge of alleged domestic violence. The good thing is he lost. What a relief. Sunday, September 11, or 9-11, as our American friends say, and we recall the terrorism that was unleashed by the U.S. of the U.S., U.N. of the U.S. of the world on September 11, 1973 on Chile, as it overthrew the elected government of Salvador Allende and imposed the butcher Augusto Pinch of Shit. Decades of terror, slaughter, torture and disappearances. U.S. Ob Supremo Joe Biden Capital said 9-11 strengthened democracy in the U.S. of. No comment. Oh, and finally, worth noting, King Big Ears, Charles III, that a previous King Charles lost his head. Good afternoon. You're listening to 855 AM.
And now part two of the interview with PhD candidate and journalist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, looking at the history of Argentina. We concluded last week with the jailing of Juan Peron. This is just the spark that lights the powder keg. So there is a massive wave of protests across Argentina. We're talking millions and millions and millions of people taking to the streets to call for Peron to be released. Army barracks are attacked by workers and by trade unions. And, you know, the situation gets so, so dangerous for these generals and these other officers and sergeants that they not only release Peron, but they give up power to Peron. Peron is then able by, you know, in 1946, elections are organised after he's released. Peron wins an incredible majority, you know, easily outpaces all of his opposition. He begins a period in Argentina lasting from 1946 to 1955 that is known as the Peronist years or the years of Peronismo. And this is the enduring, one of the most enduring political movements, political ideologies of Argentina to this day. But it's also quite a complex and sometimes controversial one. Peron establishes the Partido Justicialista, but um, the Justicialist Party or the Justice Party, which is essentially the political vehicle for his new leadership. He purges the United Officers Group of all of those um, people that betrayed him and promotes people that are more loyal to his personal vision for Argentina. Um, Not necessarily the most skilled or experienced people, unfortunately, but people that are certainly loyal to Perón. Perón begins a very, very interesting political transformation in Argentina. One of the most immediately noticeable effects of his rule is that he completely reverses the economic policies of the country. So he eliminates all of this free market laissez-faire dogma and returns to a very, very hard protectionist, state-dominated form of economic management. Very similar to a lot of socialist countries, actually, you know, without sort of direct workers' democracy, but the farms, agribusiness, um, all of this very important industry in Argentina is handed over to the state or is forced to work in very, very close cooperation with state bodies and state organs. He expels a lot of pro-free market from the government, uh, from boards of very influential institutions, from the Central Bank of Argentina. And he's very, very against, again, foreign interference in Argentina's internal affairs. He's adamant that Argentina should be a sovereign country that works in its own interests and in the interests of its own people as opposed to the interests of another country. So he's very hostile to the Americans and the British particularly. At, at one point, he even severs relations with the United States because of how tense and, cold and cool relations between the two countries get. And he's also very, very pro-union, very pro-workers' rights. So he gives a lot of power to Argentinian trade unions, particularly the urban working class trade unions, to the point where they actually have enshrined representatives in government, where, you know, people from the trade unions have to be consulted before laws are approved. There's a lot of power for the trade unions at this time. Of course, the flip side of this is that there is very little independence for the trade unions. So, for example, any strikes against Peron are more or less banned. The trade unions, if they want to maintain this sort of privileged position in Argentina and the very high wages that Peron gives to them, they cannot protest against his government. Um, And, in fact, numerous times when they try to do it, Peron 
undertakes quite a harsh repression of these sort of dissenting members of different unions. Um, but overall, there's a general consensus that the relationship between workers' movements and the Perón government is a good one. I mean, it does overall empower workers rather than disempower them. You know, there is the flip side. You know, these are all very, very good things for Argentina. You know, it's finally a very independent, powerful and, you know, worker-oriented country. Uh, but, you know, there is a flip side to this. You know, there, there is repression. It is effectively a one-party state. Whether or not you think that's a good for, or a bad thing is up for debate. I mean, you know, Argentina had had a multi-party system for the preceding 50 years and it didn't do very much good for Argentina or for the working people. This one-party Peronist system actually did. But they also had elements of their foreign policy that were quite regressive. Um, for example, one of the most infamous examples would be at the end of World War II when there was a very well-known escape of a number of Nazis and fascists and Catholics um, that had co collaborated with Mussolini's regime, they all fled to Argentina. Um, Peron did facilitate that. And there was quite an intimate connection between members of the Peronist administration, or particularly the, the army under Peron and the armies in, for example, Italy and Spain at the time. Not so much Germany in terms of actual army-to-army -army contacts, but certainly with Italy and with Spain. And in fact, in 1955, when Peron is, is overthrown, he does actually go to exile in Franco Spain. So, you know, there is this affinity between these sorts of strongmen. Even though their policies domestically differ quite significantly, you know, there is this sort of mutual respect for fellow military officers, um, and a lot of military officers in Argentina do share Nazi sympathies, which is quite, which was quite concerning and quite shocking. Peron maintained Argentina's neutrality throughout World War II. He didn't join the Allies. Until 1945, until like literally a month or two before the Germans were defeated, until he was certain that the Axis were going to be defeated. So, you know, this is quite a controversial aspect of Perón's rule, uh, but certainly domestically he did do a lot for working class people. Uh, his wife, of course, Eva Perón, or Evita, as she was affectionately known, was a very prominent figure. I think it's worthwhile mentioning her. Again, she is a figure that um, some people love and that some people hate. Some people say, you know, she was used to sort of sanitise Perón's rule. I think that's a bit harsh, to be perfectly honest. I think there is a, a case to be made for a lot of what she did. She was very, very generous with the charity, the charity organisations that she founded. Uh, she gave a lot of money to poor Argentinians. She gave a lot of, you know, for example, food, clothes, um, even housing through her charities to very, very poor Argentinians. And that's why to this day... Peron and Evita are synonymous with the left wing in Argentina. In spite of, you know, those sort of blips in their rule, they are overwhelmingly endorsed by left wing Argentinians of all stripes, communists, Peronists, centre left people, because, you know, overall theirs was a left wing program, even if they didn't call it that, it was a program that was interested in the welfare of everyday Argentinians and protecting the national interest of Argentina as opposed to making it foreign satellite or a slave to the United States or to the United Kingdom. This sort of radical trajectory and um, Perón's opposition to the United States, to the United Kingdom, to the oligarchy, he was also very hostile to the Catholic Church, um, leads to his overthrow in 1955 by conservative generals. And the Radical Civic Union Party, which was the party of Irigoyen earlier in the century, which was actually quite progressive back then, becomes the, the cheerleader of this conservative 
backlash against Perón and they become the military-backed interim government. The Argentinians don't take this lying down. There's massive waves of protests up until 1973. There's chronic instability. You know, anarchist terrorist attacks begin again. There's a, a guerrilla group, the Montoneros, which are a pro-Peron communist group. They are founded in 1970, and they begin attacking members of the Radical Civic Union and attacking members of the army. You know, this coup period, the, the various regimes that constitute this coup period are unable to establish legitimacy. And by 1973, they have to concede power and hold elections. Surprise, surprise, the Peronists or the Justicialist Party, led by Dr. Hector Campora, they take power again. So Peron's party, Peron at this time is in exile, but his ally, um, Hector Campora, takes power. Now, Campora is a very, very progressive Peronist. I mean, he's borderline a communist. He actually ends up strengthening the very progressive wing of the, of the Peronist group, the Peronist organizations. In late 1973, Peron has returned to Argentina and taken power again, uh, but he dies in 1974. So less than six months after retaking power, Peron dies. And his wife, his second wife, Isabel Peron, takes the reins. And she continues her husband's political and economic program, you know, state-led growth, alliance with the unions. But in 1976, there is another coup. And this is one of the most infamous overthrows of a democratically elected government in Argentina's history. This is the US-backed coup that was termed the national reorganization process by the military. It was a very violent fascist military takeover with intense CIA and US government support. They wanted to do away with the Peronists once and for all. And a number of generals take power. One of the most well-known is Videla, but there's also Viola, Galtieri, and Bignone. So the, all of these generals exchange power throughout this period, and they undertake a horrific war of aggression against the progressive forces of Argentina. So it's called the Dirty War, or La Guerra Sucia in Spanish. And during this period, about 30,000 people are killed. And this is just the evidence we have, you know, this is confirmed people who are killed or disappeared. The, the, the true figure is likely far higher, but there's a savage campaign of arrests and killings and torture of communists, of Peronists, of anarchists, people even just being suspected of sympathising with some sort of left-wing organisation are liquidated or they're tortured or they're imprisoned. It's a horrific time. It's akin to Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile. It's very, very similar in terms of the way it conducts itself. They establish what's called the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance, which is essentially an organization of death squads um, and also these sort of Catholic, far-right Catholic militias that take it upon themselves to kill or arrest or harass left-wing people in Argentina. This is a deeply unpopular regime. It rules by fear and by force. They, of course, re-implement the neoliberal economic agenda. They get rid of all of the state-led economic programs of the Peron years. They ban and outlaw workers' activities, other political parties, trade unions, and they begin to take massive amounts of loans, chiefly from the United States, just so that the United States can make money off Argentina, these generals heavily indebt their own country to the tune of about $45 billion over their quite brief rule, really only until 1983. So 76 to 83, it's a brief period of dictatorship. 
that the US essentially indebts Argentina $45 billion during this period. You know, there are still protests, there is still unrest, um, and of course the economy is stagnating. There's also the third world debt crisis. Argentina is unable to pay these debts because their economy is doing so poorly because of neoliberal economic dogma. They haven't invested in their own national industry. They're not saving any money. They've devalued their own currency, the Argentinian peso, so they can't pay back their, the bonds that they've bought and the loans that they've bought because their currency is quickly becoming worthless on the international market. So the generals resort to a military conflict, as often happens in Argentina, to try and recoup their losses, to try and distract from the very, very dire situation that the country finds itself in, and they choose the Falkland Islands. Now, this is, you know, a pivotal moment in Argentina's history. Now, the British have controlled the Falkland Islands since 1846. First, they took it off the Spanish. It was reclaimed by Argentina post-independence, and then the British took it back off Argentina uh, in the first half of the 19th century. So the generals claim that they're going to reclaim the Falkland Islands for Argentina. They're going to take it off the British. This is a very ironic situation because, of course, the dictatorship is a very close ally of the United Kingdom. Margaret Thatcher actually sympathises a lot with the program of the dictatorship. Um, there's a lot of trade between the two countries at this time. But the generals are desperate, and this is the only way that they think they're going to be able to sort of maintain their control in the country. So they begin the Falklands War. And of course, you know, it's over in 1982. It's pretty disastrous. Uh, the Argentinians lose, in spite of the fact that their army's in power, their navy is not particularly well equipped. The British navy is still, you know, quite capable, and they defeat the Argentinians. And it's a humiliating defeat for the dictatorship. The exact opposite of what they wanted to happen, you know, they were hoping that they would have a victory and that their support would be buoyed by this sort of defeat of a foreign power, but they just end up being embarrassed and humiliated by the United Kingdom. By 1983, the generals have to give up, give up power. It's becoming clear, you know, that this there's a, again a growing wave of protests against the regime, and elections are held in 1983. The Radical Civic Union receives 52% of the vote. It's a very slim majority. And they continue this program of neoliberalism. They don't really change anything, economically speaking, that the dictatorship did. And in 1989, the Peronists reclaim power, but it's a very conservative faction of Peronism, led by Carlos Menem. And he begins a very large-scale privatisation program, far larger than the generals or the radical civic union. In fact, this is really the period that we begin to see the, a really, really severe form of austerity start to take place in Argentina. And Menem is in power until 1999. But what we see is, you know, a neoliberal platform. It continues to be implemented. Anti-labour policies, financial liberalisation. The Argentinian government continues to take in debt, not only from the loans that the generals incurred from the United States, but they actually end up taking debt from the private sector, so private Argentinian companies and private foreign companies force their debt upon the Argentinian state and budget deficits are jump up to 15% of GDP. 
this payment of debt runs 15% over the gross domestic product of Argentina each year. So they're spending pretty much their entire GDP on paying off these debts that are either you know, accrued from the period of the dictatorship or that the private sector just doesn't want to pay because they want to keep their money and keep making money. On Tuesday Home Time on 3CR, you're listening to the second part of my interview with PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Lakakis about the recent history of Argentina in South America. This situation leads to a lack of confidence in Argentinian markets, unsurprisingly. Industrial production falls by 20% because of these neoliberal reforms. So the industrial sector is sort of broken down, broken apart, deindustrialized to make room for foreign companies coming in and using cheaper labor from Argentina. Um, so real wages lost 36% of their purchasing power and unemployment reached 21% by the end of the 1990s. So it's an absolute tinderbox situation. The economy is totally stagnant, you know, virtually in ruins because of neoliberalism. Argentinian government tries to restore confidence in their markets by floating their currency. They hope if their currency becomes weaker, people will want to start reinvesting again because it's going to be cheaper to do business in Argentina. And they, they even end up introducing a new currency very briefly. They call it the Austral, the Argentinian Austral. It's a totally botched plan, just leads to inflation. The currency gets even more worthless. And by 1989, inflation is peaking at 5,000% per year. So absolutely staggering levels of economic mismanagement. Argentinian people, not only is their currency completely depressed, but prices haven't decreased in line with wage decreases. So they can't afford anything, even basic food products. Because of inflation, prices are changing on an hourly basis. Sometimes people are going in, for example, to supermarkets and the price of milk is changing multiple times within a day. That's how schizophrenic Argentina's economy is. And what ends up happening is most Argentinians decide that they want to take their money out of their banks. They don't trust the banks. They think that, you know, there's going to be a seizure of their, of their savings, that their currency is going to further devalue if it's kept in these private banks. En masse, Argentinian people start trying to take money out of their bank accounts and keep it, you know, in cash form. So, you know, that they can keep it and use it in the informal economy and try and stop any sort of seizure of their, of their funds and of their savings. Now, what happens in 1999 is that the banks freeze all withdrawals from accounts, from Argentinian accounts. So they don't let people take their own money out of bank accounts. They essentially hold Argentina's population's bank savings hostage because they don't want a bank run to take place. Now, this leads to huge protests across Argentina. Dozens of people actually die in these protests. It's a really, really violent time. And what does the Argentinian government do? This right-wing neoliberal Peronism, they take a loan from the International Monetary Fund, $100 billion, to try and start paying off the debts, to try and restore um, you know, consumer confidence and international corporate confidence in the Argentinian economy. Of course, this doesn't work. Argentina doesn't have the money to pay this debt to begin with. But you know, the IMF, the United States, the Argentinian elite, they're making quite a lot of money off this debt in Argentina. So, you know, it's, of course, working in the interests of the elite. These protests against the status quo, against what is called the Argentinian Great Depression, reach a fever pitch, and by 2002, the government has to resign. They cannot manage the situation. 
and we have the return of a left-wing Peronism. Nestor Kirchner and his wife, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, they take power at the head of the Justicialist Party, and they say they're going to stop the neoliberalism. They're not going to pay the IMF. They're not going to pay the debt that the IMF uh, has imposed on the country, and they're going to restore Argentina's fortunes. And remarkably, in spite of this situation, that is exactly what they do. So Nestor Kirchner um, takes office in 2003. It's a slim victory in terms of the election itself, um, but he becomes incredibly popular, particularly among the Argentinian working class. He reduces unemployment to about 6 or 7%, from 21%. He and his wife later managed to lift 11 million people out of poverty. So very similar to what Lula did in Brazil, in fact, even a little bit more radical. So they they restore state control over key sectors of the economy. They massively expand the social security net. Um, They re-industrialize Argentina, which is very, very important, so that Argentina begins to reproduce products for export, so it's not import-dependent economy, so it's not dependent solely on, you know, these loans and very, very sort of speculative private capital. So this all helps the Argentinian economy, um, even you know, even the right wing and the the oligarchs were quite happy with the way that the Kirchners were you know, changing, transforming Argentina's economic structures. Because after that period of the 1980s and the 1990s of just total economic ruin, for the benefit of a tiny you know one percent and you know their foreign backers. You know, this was actually starting to generate wealth for them too, like significant returns because wages were rising, productivity was rising. Argentina was actually attractive as as a foreign investment destination. And this was accompanied by that sort of state-led intervention in the economy to promote that industrialization uh, and, of course, to support the poorest Argentinians with social welfare. Now, very sadly for, for the majority of poor Argentinians, Nestor Kirchner uh, perished, he passed away, and Cristina, his wife, uh, took over the presidency in 2007. Now, she was even more radical than her husband had been, so she expanded the social uh, the social safety net um, and all the social services for poor Argentinians. Um, she continued the, the project of her husband that involved actually trialling and investigating the abuses of the military dictatorship in Argentina from 76 to 83. So unlike Chile, for example, where the generals remain untouched and up until recently, now there's a new constitution, things will change. Uh, But Argentina actually dealt with the issue of punishing the military, members of the military regime um, under Nestor Kirchner, but particularly under Cristina as well. Um, Cristina was also adamant in forging a sense of Latin American unity, solidarity, greater integration for the region. She's a very close ally of uh, Lula da Silva, for example, in Brazil, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Cuba as well. In fact, uh, she ended up sending her daughter to Cuba um, for a number of psychiatric issues that her daughter had. Um, and, And I do mention her daughter and that particular situation because... Cristina and her family came under horrific levels of media scrutiny and abuse and harassment because of her attempts to redistribute wealth, make Argentina independent, actually make it a you know a left-wing, socially oriented, progressive country again. You know the media invented all sorts of fabrications about Cristina 
there was speculation about her family. People made up scandals. In particular, there's a particularly large newspaper, Clarín, which is like a, a daily in Argentina. It's sort of the equivalent of the Murdoch press for Argentina. They just made up totally salacious uh, garbage, quite frankly, about Cristina and her family um, that was unfortunately believed by, by a not small segment of the Argentinian population. Um, her family home was raided on spurious charges of corruption, which we're going to get to because they've resurfaced recently. Um, again, they found nothing in her house. There were no documents incriminating her in this particular case of corruption. Now, the case itself, um, it's purported it, or it's it suggested um, that Cristina gave state contracts to businesses owned by a family friend, about 50 state contracts in a number of different sectors um, of the economy and social services, and they said that that constituted an act of corruption. Now, first and foremost, um, the 50 cases in question, the 50 individual contracts in question, were not all given to this family friend. The, the judiciary actually has the contracts on paper, so they know for a fact that that is not the case. And secondly, all of them were approved by the Argentinian Congress, including the right-wing opposition. So even if, even if this were true and that she had given these state contracts to a family friend, the entire Congress of Argentina approved it. So everyone should be going to jail for corruption, not just Cristina. But of course, you know, the facts are totally irrelevant to the judiciary, which is still very, very conservative, compromised. Um, in the day of they've aligned themselves with the right wing in the country. Um, and, you know, this culminated in 2015 with the electoral loss of Cristina and the um, Justicialist Party. And Mauricio Macri took over for a very brief period. Now, he is the right-wing opposition in Argentina. Now, his party is called Juntos por el Cambio, Together for Change. By change, they mean a change from, Peron from Peronism and a return to neoliberalism. And his brief period of um, governance devastated the country. He engendered, um, you know, even greater levels of corruption than already existed in Argentina. Um, and he indebted the country an additional $45 billion. So in that brief four-year period, he indebted his country an additional one, uh, an additional $45 billion. So Argentina's debt at this point uh, has exceeded $200 billion. It's, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous levels of debt. Um, and, you know, thankfully, the Kirchner's were actually paying it off, the economic changes they made and their actual um, attempts to negotiate with the IMF and, you know, stand their ground and demand uh, reductions to the debt payments meant that they were actually making headway in paying the debt for the country. But he just totally sidelined all that, you know, reversed almost a decade of progress on paying back Argentina's debts, um, you know, implemented austerity. Unsurprisingly, in 2019, he lost because of how unpopular he was, and the Peronists won again. Now, this time it's Alberto Fernandez. He was chosen by the Justicialist Party because he is a uh, he's a relatively uncontroversial figure. He is liked by both the right wing of the party and the left wing of the party. He himself sits a bit further to the left, which is a good thing. Uh, and he's very heavily influenced by Cristina, who is the vice president as we speak, which again, I mean, you know, it's open to interpretation. Uh, from my personal perspective, it's a very good thing that she still has a lot of influence because she's very interested in protecting the rights of poor Argentinians and, you know, asserting Argentina's, sovereign, Argentina's sovereignty, sorry, um, in all matters, in foreign affairs, in economic aspects. 
Um, now, unfortunately, Argentina was very hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they got a lot of cases very, very early. A lot of people died, not as much as in other parts of Latin America, but it was still you know, higher than average, unfortunately, because those four years of neoliberalism under Macri had sort of essentially left the health system unprepared. You know, it had been damaged. It had been um, sort of uh, gutted a little bit, really. Um, but, you know, they did their best. The Peronists did expand social payments. They did give housing to homeless people um, in, you know, unused apartment blocks, for example. They just took that off the people that owned them to house homeless people, which is a really valiant thing to do, a very brave thing to do, I think. Um, but, you know, it, the economy suffered. People suffered. Unemployment rose, as it did in most places on Earth. Um, and, you know, the Peronists did take a hit at their legislative elections. They lost their majority in 2021. Um, now, the right wing doesn't have a majority either. Um, so I just want to make it clear that it's not like they're more popular than the Peronists. But, you know, there is a little bit of a deadlock now um, in Argentina's legislative bodies. So it's quite hard for the government to pass legislation at the moment. Um, and, you know, this attack on the Peronists continued, this right-wing attack, um, with the resurfacing of these corruption allegations against Cristina that I mentioned. Um, that was literally only a few weeks ago. And the prosecutors in Argentina are now calling for Cristina to be jailed for 12 years and have her right to be involved in politics revoked for life. So they essentially want to bar her from political participation because they know she threatens the status quo and she threatens the elite and that she represents the interests of poor Argentinians. Uh, and she's very outspoken. She's a very charismatic, outspoken, fiery individual, which is a really good thing for her movement and for her policies, but it terrifies the um, right-wing opposition. So they're now trying to push this agenda against her. She's currently at her home. Police have surrounded it. So, you know, she's more or less under a sort of strange state of almost house arrest, but not really because the trial is still pending. Um, and thankfully, the Peronist movement, so the, her supporters have come out en masse, tens of thousands came out to support her. They surrounded her home to express their support. They were chanting, we're with you, Christina, estamos contigo. Um, you know, there's footage of this. They were attacking the police um, as well because they wanted her to be able to leave her home. Uh, and they were also attacking a very a much smaller right-wing um, protest movement that emerged to actually, um, you know, say that they approve of Cristina being put under house arrest for whatever reason, whether it's these spurious corruption allegations or, you know, due process, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, if you'd asked me literally a few days ago what I thought the future of Argentina was going to be, I was going to say I'm unsure because, you know, the judiciary may well be able to jail her for this, um, as they did to Lula. They jailed Lula under totally false corruption charges, um, you know, even though they now had to release him. The same thing could well happen to Cristina um, because, you know, it's a tried and tested practice, this, um, this lawfare, this use of lawfare and legal mechanisms to, um, to destroy democratically elected socialist governments. But something last week happened that I think has changed the playing field in her favour and in the favour of the Peronists. It is that there was an attempted assassination of Cristina in front of her home. So she was coming out to greet her supporters who had massed around her home. Um, and, you know, there's footage of this. It's quite, it's quite shocking, horrific, actually. A man pulls a gun, you can see it, holds it right at her face, point blank, 
she sees it, covers her face, expecting to be shot. Now, for whatever reason, he either doesn't pull the trigger or there's uh, the gun malfunctions. We don't really know yet the very specifics of it, but the gun doesn't go off. And then her supporters and the police take action and pin him down, take the gun, take him away. So she very narrowly survived an assassination attempt. Now, this man who tried to kill her is a Brazilian. We don't know if he was working on behalf of anyone. My personal suspicion is that he's a sort of Bolsonaro fan, you know, a fascist who just took it on himself to um, try and kill Cristina because she's a left-wing icon in Argentina and in Latin America. Look, it could have very well included, you know, CIA or Argentinian right-wing collusion. I'm not sure. We really don't know a lot, um, a lot of details beyond that he's Brazilian, um, and, and that's pretty much it. Uh, but this has galvanised support for Cristina massively. There's been massive pro uh, Peronist demonstrations, pro Cristina demonstrations. We're talking tens of thousands of people flooding the streets of Buenos Aires. There's massive, massive. Um, photos, you know, of these huge crowds um, from an aerial vantage point. Um, so, if anything, this attempted assassination has just galvanised left-wing support for the government. It's done the opposite of what the assassin probably wanted, which was to, you know, kill Cristina, frighten um, her party and her movement, but this has just galvanised support, and I suspect the judiciary is going to have a very hard time doing anything to Cristina now that she's survived this um, assassination attempt and essentially uh, become a martyr. And look, as for the future, even though they had an electoral setback, Peronism has always been the more popular of the forces in Argentina compared to neoliberalism. It has always won out over neoliberalism. And I suspect, particularly as I said after this incident, uh, that it will continue to do so uh, in the elections that come in the future, particularly now that it's being accompanied by a new pink tide in Latin America. You've been listening to the final part of an interview looking at the history of Argentina in South America with Sasha Gillis-Lakakis, PhD candidate and also presenter of the Latin American Update program here on 3CR Sunday mornings at 10.30. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridway Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. I've interviewed Cathy Kelly, peace activist, over many years now first with Voices in the Wilderness, which campaigned against the war on Iraq and the crippling blockade, then Voices for Creative Nonviolence, which closed in 2019. During these years, she worked with a peace team travelling to Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen and Gaza, as well as campaigning at home in the US. Today, Kathy Kelly has yet another hat, working with the peace group World Beyond War, and in 2015 was unanimously awarded the U.S. Peace Memorial Foundation Peace Prize. She joined peace activists such as Code Pink, Chelsea Manning, Medea Benjamin, Noam Chomsky and Cindy Sheehan. So, Kathy, can we first talk about the U.S. Peace Memorial Foundation? What's the history of this group? Well, there's a very enterprising person, Michael Knox, who believes that if we're going to have war memorials, what we should certainly have 
peace memorials and commemorate the people who have dedicated lives to peace. And so he started a foundation uh, to choose someone every year who would be recognized for what they've done for peace. And he he really means it not as a a way to sort of um, flatter anybody's ego, but to do education, to educate people about the kinds of things that can be done in order to truly build a world wherein people would be educated enough that they would realize how foolish and and dreadful warfare is and that there are alternatives. So, So I'm glad that he's done what he has been so dedicated to doing. And he, you know, he's formed an organization. He's written a book and he every year puts out the list of nominees for that for a given year's award and then a group of people give him some feedback and then a choice is made and then they pick a place that's an appropriate spot for that particular group or person to receive the award. So for instance, Code Pink has received it and World Beyond War and Veterans for Peace and and also, you know, Noam Chomsky and he's certainly someone to be revered as a, a, a guiding light in how to resist wars. And what was the specific reason for yours, Kathy? Oh, I suppose the fact that we had tried to go and live alongside people living in war zones and try to amplify their voices in a sense and that we had taken some risks to do that, including at times going into prisons and um, refusing to pay for war. And how does it operate on a daily day basis? Well, I think that Michael is a good researcher, and so he continues to write regularly about the folly and the futility of war. And he's also a a good networker, so he keeps on bringing other groups and people on board. And, you know, here in the United States, I guess I think we need every grassroots group possible to keep on pressing home the idea that these wars don't solve anything, that they don't create security, that they don't do anything really much more than put money in the pockets of some war profiteers. I mean, major corporations that now have huge influence on the U.S. Congress and on U.S. education, even on the churches, uh, Lockheed Martin and Boeing and Raytheon and General Atomics. I see that awards are awarded on the 9th of August. Is that the same every year? I believe so, yes. I think that the idea is to recall the horrors of nuclear war and that, you know, the one time one side had the weapon and others didn't, it was used against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, I think that Michael is certainly wanting to condemn conventional weaponry, nuclear weaponry, and even, you know, the usage of economic warfare to oppress other people. Well, this brings me to the organisation World Beyond Wars. That was founded on January 1, 2014. Who was behind that one? Well, two people, David Hartsoe and David Swanson, really um, picked up the ball and ran with it. I, I remember there were a series of very long phone calls trying to, you know, work out. This was pre-Zoom days and trying to work out amongst a group of peace activists what would be the vision of World Beyond War. And they've really uh, come into their own. It's an, it's now a global movement 
And the idea is to abolish all wars. There's no good war. There's no acceptable war. And to establish a just and sustainable peace. And there are now really tens of thousands of people across 193 countries that have signed on to World Beyond War's Declaration of Peace. And in fact, there are 700 organizations that have signed. And there are 22 chapters in 12 countries and uh, partnerships with about uh, 93 different affiliates. So so it's a, it, it grew pretty quickly, really, given that they only just got started in 2014. But I, I was just uh, so impressed last week by awards that were given through a webinar, and it was fascinating to learn what the three recipients were doing. They, they called it the War Abolitionists Award. One award went to the Whidbey Environmental Action Network. And this group out in the west coast of the United States realized that the United States Navy SEALs, some of the most highly trained warriors in the world, were planning to invade them, invade their seacoast and invade their parks and conduct training operations. And they said, no, not in our parks, not on our beaches. And they took the group to court, the United States Navy SEALs, and they won. So they were able to prevent the Navy SEALs from undertaking this kind of terrifying training that would have otherwise happened. And, and that, that I think, will it'll sort of be an inspiration to other groups across the United States that are trying to take on the military to stop these terrible waste, like radioactive waste dumps, or to stop the United States military from flying these screaming F-35 jets over their communities. And so it, it'll it'll hearten people that in Hawaii, the United States military is badly polluting the water along numerous islands in Hawaii. And so we needed to see a win in a sense. And then Another group that got an award were these Italian dock workers who just said, nope, we're not going to load weapons onto ships that are bound for Saudi Arabia to be used against Yemen. And they didn't. And uh, they've been very strong. They also won't load weapons onto ships carrying weaponry to Ukraine. And they're quite staunch in their commitment not to be involved in sending weapons on to be used to kill people. And then Jeremy Corbyn, who is um, such a, a fine peace activist connecting so many different dots in terms of resistance to war and um, taking care of refugees and having sane economic policies. He received the um, Lifetime Achievement sort of award, and it was wonderful to hear from him. And these awards go to people in many, many countries, don't they? Right. Um, World Beyond War doesn't even want to give an address for where its base is because it doesn't want to see itself as a U.S.-based organization. They're con- constantly they're trying to uh, enlist interns from other countries, board members from other countries. And so it's really interesting to be on the board and advisory board phone calls because you're getting reports from people literally all over the world, from Sri Lanka, from New Zealand, from Australia, from different parts of Africa, Latin America. And and I find that quite good. And there's also a a strong effort to enlist young people. 
talk about the New Zealand filmmaker who won an award. Well, I had no idea that there had been a decision on the part of New Zealand military to give up on trying to overcome people in West Papua through uh, treaties that would be enforced by militarism. And so instead they went over there with guitars. The soldiers played guitars and then the indigenous people began to dance and it worked. And so he made a film about that. And and I, I think it's great to popularize that sort of message. Now, a big event is planned for November and that's the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal. You're featuring this as a, a number of tribunals have already been held over many years. Right. Well, this is planned for November 2023. So we fortunately have about 14 months to plan it. But we are looking back to the Bertrand Russell Tribunal, which challenged those who were advocating for the Vietnam War to continue. And Bertrand Russell convened uh, just an all-star cast, in a sense, to come together as tribunal members and hear evidence and then make a decision. And then since that tribunal in the 1964-65, you know, they had hearings in various different parts of the world. Since that time, there's been a tribunal about Israel-Palestine, which held hearings in various parts of the world. Um, there was just recently a tribunal about police violence. And so a number of us with the Band Colored Drones campaign had been thinking we should have a treaty to prohibit weaponized drones. But then we thought, you know, what if we were to hold a tribunal? And then we thought, well, maybe not just the drones, the weaponized drones. Why not have a tribunal that says that all of these weapon-making corporations ought to be held to account. And so we've refined it a bit. We're now saying that we'll focus on Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, and General Atomics, which makes uh, many of the, the drone, weaponized drones that are just outfitted now with hideous Hellfire missiles. And what we're planning to do on November of this year, November 11th, which is Armistice Day, is to go to the headquarters. All of these groups now have headquarters in Washington, D.C., and we want to deliver big enlarged subpoenas. And those subpoenas will ask each corporation to produce the documents uh, at least 60 days in advance of the tribunal in 2023. And we want to know how much profit did they make from selling weapons and military supplies in each of the last 10 years? We want to know how many lobbyists have they retained over the last 10 years. And these lobbyists then go to Congress and they lean on the Congress members to spend more and more money on weapons and military supplies. So we want to know how many lobbyists each of these countries has employed and what kinds of influence did they actually have on the U.S. Congress? And then many of these companies, it's like a revolving door. If somebody serves in the United States government, leaves government, and then gets on the executive board of one of the weapon companies, 
or vice versa. You know, our General Lloyd Austin was on the board of directors for Raytheon before he became the Secretary of Defense under um, President Joe Biden. So we want to know how many ex-military people has each of these corporations hired in the last 10 years? And then how many ex-congressional or administrative employees have they hired in the last 10 years? And then we want copies of their internal memos that talk about how many people have died or been wounded because of their weapons. And often that just gets swept under the rug. I think I've mentioned to you before, Jan, that the family members of Zemarai Ahmadi and Zemarai Ahmadi himself, who were killed by a United States drone on August 29th of 2021, became international news. And that was unusual. But otherwise, what happened to them wasn't really very unusual. It's happened again and again and again. So at the tribunal, we want to have pre-recorded testimony of people who've survived these attacks in Yemen, in Gaza, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And then we also want pre-recorded testimony of people like Noam Chomsky or the international lawyer Richard Falk or Nobel Peace Laureate Mairead McGuire. They've all said, yes, 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 we'll, we'll participate in this. And John Pilger, a, a remarkable filmmaker, he says he's on board. And so we're, we're sort of fanning out and kind of building the grassroots network while we're also getting um, people to agree to give testimony as witnesses. And then we need to have tribunal members. So, for instance, if you would want to be a tribunal member, that would be brilliant because you've spent so many hours listening to people talk about war and peace. Well, as I said, this tribunal is inspired by the Nuremberg trials of German industrialists at the end of World War II, and also you mentioned Bertrand Russell there. How successful were those tribunals? Well, it's very interesting to look at the Nuremberg trial, the um, people that worked for the Krupp Corporation were uh, tried for pretty specific charges like um, enslaving people in their factories and making the products that were used by the Nazis to enforce their reign. One of the very interesting things about that trial is that President Roosevelt wanted to see the trial go forward, but he had to ask himself, well, you know, what laws are being violated? Whose laws are being violated? And it turned out that the Kellogg-Briand Pact that had been signed onto after World War One, a pact which outlawed war, is a remarkable document. It said all wars are criminal. They're wrong. They're, they're, and the United States signed and Germany signed. And many countries, once you sign one of those treaties, it becomes your law of the land. But the, you know, the United States certainly doesn't pay any attention, no, pays no attention to it anymore. But at the point of the Nuremberg trials, a lawyer said to Roosevelt, well, here's what you need. Germany signed on to the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and it's on that basis that we can try the German industrialists. And so that's what happened. Now, did the Nuremberg trials make it less likely that people would go to war? I don't think so, because never were any of the people who firebombed Dresden or Tokyo 
or used atomic weapons against Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Never were those people brought to trial. So there was kind of a fundamental imbalance. And I think we have to be honest about that. And the Bertram Russell International War Crimes Tribunal? Well, I think it set a precedent for saying that if governments aren't going to hold themselves accountable, ordinary people still have a responsibility to try to do so. Arundhati Roy testified at a later tribunal on Israel-Palestine, and she said, you know, uh, there's not even an intent in this effort to try to uphold standards of law that the major world governments ascribe to. We are holding this tribunal in order to uphold the rights of the people who are vanquished by war. And so I think that's important. Uh, you know, this is a, an unusual setting in which to try to hold the major weapon manufacturers accountable, and it's never been done before. And so we are very much um, wanting to be respectful of ordinary people whose testimony we want to solicit, whose participation on the tribunal we want to encourage. And what we're hoping is that in this you know, time of pandemic, the people will go and watch together in their own cities or at their own universities or within their own faith-based groups, in their communities, watch together all around the world these proceedings. Uh, but we don't want people to feel like they have to undertake expensive plane rides with the carbon emissions in order to assemble in one place. So uh, it'll be very much an online event, although we may get some of the tribunal members to come together in one place. When we have grassroots organisations and participants engaging in issues such as this, where does that leave you, the United Nations role in peace? Mm. Well, you know, with the Security Council, the United Nations is tied up. They cannot weigh in on the most crucial issues without one or another member of the Security Council saying, sorry, we're going to veto that. So it becomes very politicized, and the most important issues, ending prohibiting nuclear weaponry, coping with climate catastrophe, and stopping economic warfare, stopping uh, the many ways in which bigger countries obliterate and bludgeon smaller countries, those matters can't get dealt with, much less pandemics, I think because the Security Council has been given just disproportionate power. And if we could get rid of the Security Council and if the General Assembly of Nations could pronounce, I think we'd probably see some very fair activities going on. But at least there is still the functioning of many United Nations agencies like the Food and Agriculture Organization, the World Food Program, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, United Nations efforts to get rid of cluster bombs and landmines and unexploded ordnance. All of these things are very, very important. But in terms of solving the major crises of our time, I, I don't think the UN has the capacity because of the way it was structured in the very beginning. 
well then, isn't it time that the structure was changed after all those years? Well, I think that's certainly the case. But then uh, you've got these kind of behemoths that are all battling to become, you know, the primary hegemon in the world, China and the United States and Russia and the United Kingdom and France. And it seems that uh, the General Assembly, no matter how many resolutions get put forth, has never yet been able to get around that juggernaut of the Security Council. Wondering, Kathy, how the issue of China is being addressed in the United States. We have virtually hysteria here about you know, China moving into the Pacific, you know, the threat to all the islands, nations in the Pacific. What's it like in the U.S.? Well, I think the media is trying very hard to cooperate with the United States government insistence that China is the new bad guy and that because of China, we should justify all manner of new Navy frigates that are um, able to possibly launch even nuclear weapons and all manner of robotized weaponry. And the thing that's so maddening to me is that I think most people in the United States don't really have any big grievance against China or any fear of China. It's just something that uh, the mainstream media tries very hard to whip up, and I think it's very much uh, because of the lucrative profits that weapon makers can derive from convincing people that we have this terrible enemy. Whereas, actually, if we don't learn how to cooperate with China and their scientists and their environmentalists, I think the options for surviving climate catastrophe are badly, badly diminished. And so it's a it's a terrible time to be building divides and building walls and trying to exacerbate grievances. And, and of course, the war in Ukraine is going to be used also because the United States is going to say, well, China is aligning with Russia. But, you know, the more that the United States loads Ukraine up with weaponry, the more that's going to become, you know, a, a, a prediction that is fulfilled because people don't want the United States to be the predominant power in their region. It sort of gives reminders of the Soviet Union where they were forced over many years to keep on rearming and spending so much money. Well, if you've got the world arming Ukraine, it's forcing Russia now to spend more and more money on war. Uh, it's, it's so futile, and, and, and who is going to suffer? You know, you think of the people who are almost being used in a proxy war, and you know, I don't know that the children, for instance, in Ukraine are ever being asked, do you want to die at a young age in order to um, pursue a U.S. goal to weaken the country next door? It, it's um, increasingly clear, I think, that the United States is using Ukrainian people, and yet their president, President Zelensky, has backed away from serious peace negotiations. And then I also think it's a terrible thing that Finland and Sweden are wanting to arm themselves, and Germany has repealed, has turned away from the role that it played, which was such a valuable role, and a role of moderation and saying, look, you know, it doesn't really 
help economies to get yourself so militarized that you can't meet human needs. And now they're going to become one of the strongest military economies in, in the world. And, and these developments happened, I think, because Putin took such a, a foolish and a, a regrettable step. But I think the United States and others that were provoking Russia were just waiting for for this to be a beneficial act for them in terms of their view of what creates a world power. We're talking earlier about your work over many decades for peace in the Middle East and supporting the people. What's happening with your friends in 2022 in Afghanistan? Well, I feel such concern for everyone who is corresponding right now. You know, there are about 22 who are now in Pakistan, and it's not a safe place to be. Some of them crossed over illegally. Some got visas at great expense, but those visas, you know, only last for a couple of months, and then they are back in the same boat of not having valid documents, and they could be deported back to Afghanistan at any point. So we're trying very hard, Jan, to help them get to another place, to a safer haven. Eight of them are now thriving, really thriving in Portugal. The Portuguese government uh, welcomed uh, these eight young people to go to an area that was suffering because of depopulation and a, a, a very arid land that had was in need of regeneration. And so the pictures are just remarkable. You see this you know, ground that they're planting seeds in, and now it's just as lush and productive as can be. And they're proud of that. They really followed the teachings of permaculture, and they worked hard 6 o'clock in the morning you know, till 12 noon under the hot sun. And, and, and they've also begun to learn Portuguese, and they're getting integrated into the social and the community and the economic life of the region. And so now we think the Portuguese government might be willing to take some more people. And we've got quite a few who are desperate for just such a step. And then those who are in Afghanistan, you know, they're facing extreme hunger. The young women are feeling imprisoned. I hear every day from young women who say we can't go outside, we can't continue our education. We're fearful that the Taliban will accuse our families if we ever try to do something for ourselves. So they're they're feeling trapped. However, I think one of the most egregious wrongs of this past year has been the United States freezing the assets of the Afghan Central Bank. That that's not US money to to determine the future of what happens. That's the money that belonged to people in Afghanistan. And the United States froze $7.9 billion of Afghan assets and then said that $3.5 billion of that would be paid out to families of people whose loved ones were killed on September 11th. Some of the families who lost their loved ones on September 11th have been brilliantly clear. They've said, we don't want that money. Put that money into feeding hungry people and erecting shelter over people who become displaced. One of the great supporters and workers with the young people in Afghanistan for many years is Dr. Hakim 
Is he still there? No, at the outset of COVID, he realized that, you know, over the years, his own physical health had been compromised quite a bit. Uh, the air was so acrid and full of smoke and pathogens, and so, and then it wasn't possible for him to go back. He's been on the phone with so many of the young people. What do you believe his contribution was for the people? Well, I believe that he inspired a young group of people to feel like they could pursue equality, serious equality, by treating one another equally. And and that, you know, was kind of new for a lot of the young people. The girls were not accustomed to having an equal say at the table, basically, or expecting that if there's cleanup to be done, the young men do their share, or cooking, that the young men get involved. He taught them to really care for the environment, and Afghanistan is desperate for that. You know, the rivers are dried up and full of litter, and these young people planted trees, thousands of trees, and cleaned up the riverbeds on various, uh, you know, designated cleanup days. And then he taught them to share resources, and they did that brilliantly. And, you know, it was a lot of work because they'd have to climb high mountainsides and on icy days and visit the women who were forced up to the top of the mountains because they couldn't pay rent further down. And um, they helped those widows earn a meager income by developing what was called the Duvet Project to manufacture heavy blankets. And then they would load up lorries and they'd bring those heavy blankets to the refugee camps and distribute them free of charge in the winter weather. They did many projects like that. They helped so many kids who were child laborers learn how to read and write, and that was a big deal. And then they taught nonviolence classes to those same kids, and those are the ones that are now in touch with Dr. Hakim and the ones that I'm in touch with who have fled Afghanistan in a sense might have been persecuted for what they were doing, and so that you know, when we tell other people in other countries who might become hosts for these young people what they've done, they're kind of like amazed. You know, teenagers in a war zone did all of that. Well, finally, Kathy, you can see there's plenty of work for peace foundations for the situation in many countries around oh, the world. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think that education, education, education is so crucial. Education is active and action is educative, but we we can all find a way to, you know, kind of find our niche, I suppose. I often say if you spread the peanut butter too thin, the bread rips. Can't take on everything, but each of us can take on something and let it become part of our passion. And we may yet be able to enable planetary survival. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye the inspiring peace activist, Kathy Kelly. Hi, Hi. we're from Braver College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. Woo! 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch.
60 years ago, September 1962, the news of the world was China invades India. But the reality was that India actually invaded China, but don't let the truth get in place of a good story. Talking now to historian and author Humphrey McQueen. This spring is the 60th anniversary of India's invasion of China in 1962. That invasion at the time was sold as China's invasion of India. But it's very important now because those old lies are bound to be regurgitated, partly by the Indians at the moment, to make themselves look um, poor victims again, and by the US corporate warfare state to remind us of all how aggressive and expansionist the Chinese have always been. And doubtless it will reappear on the ABC, recycle there as one could only expect. But in the 1960s, indeed, there in ways it worse because the so-called China's invasion was one of the lies that was used to justify the US corporate warfare state attack on the peoples of Indochina. And in 2022, 50 plus years later, we're going to be told that what happened in 62, although it didn't happen, will be sold to us as why we need to be part of the quad, why we need nuclear submarines, all of the rest. Where does the truth come from? How do we know that it was the Indians who invaded, not the Chinese? There's an Australian journal, Max Fultz had been the Times correspondent in India. And at the time, 1962, he wrote the standard line that the Chinese had invaded India. And India, you may remember, of course, there was Gandhi, they were all pacifists. They don't go around attacking people. He swallowed this line. But then he investigated, and he found that the reverse had actually been the truth. And he wrote a book called India's China War, which came out from Penguin in 1970. He probably hunted down somewhere. He found it in a few of the larger libraries. That was the book that really set the old version on its ear. One way of looking at that is to look at some of the reviews of the book. A point to one in particular that was in The Age, and it was written by Sir Walter Crocker. Crocker was a crusty old Tory, High Commissioner for Failure Across to India. But Despite all of that, he was not afraid to face the fact. He read the book and said, yes, it wasn't the only book, of course. There was a much more factual, standard view from a man called Alistair Lamb. But he was an expert on the politics of the Himalaya. But he set out to explain the situation. Now, drawing a borderline somewhere up in the Himalaya is not easy. First of all, there's the rain. Then there's the snow. The British imperialists, they wanted to use it against India and against their enemies in the 1960s, those dreadful Tsarist Russians. But during the 1950s, China negotiated borderline with all of its neighbours. Except Chinese, there was this push back and forth and across the line in the spring of 62, Nehru moved into the which the Chinese considered to be theirs. The Chinese pushed back, and then the Chinese then withdrew 
it's hard to think that of being attacked, moving forward, occupying position, and then pulling back. For the 1966 in Australia, the Liberal Party was pushing the line. What was happening was that the Vietnamese were just the puppets of the Chinese, and the Chinese were making, as the ad said, a push between the Indian and the and, and the Ocean. We now know, of course, that the last thing that the, that the Vietnamese had to do was to bow down to the Chinese, as we saw, when they had a bit of a, a brawl of their own. But Henry Wong will head all this kind of line again, hard on the alert for, for an attack. In fact, one lot of there's going to be a nuclear attack on Australia. Very important that we get all the right going back. The Chinese did not start the Korean War. That did not start the Vietnamese War. China's invasion of India. All of these things were things that we campaigned against through the 60s and throughout the 1970s. But we've got to revive it again. It's important that uh, if you've got the opportunity to look at Neville Maxwell's book, as I say, the two main ones were were the Neville Maxwell one and the Alistair Lamb one. The Indians have had a chance since uh, to put um, their case that, in fact, they were the victims. But from what I've read of it, uh, and there are plenty of people who are fairly objective scholars about this, I don't think there's been any real shift away from the position that Maxwell and Lamb advanced around those years. It's happening in a different way now, of course, because, I mean, things have changed. The nature of China has changed. Whatever you thought of China in 1962... It wasn't this rampant capitalist country that it's become. You know, the kind of internal politics are very, very different to what they were then, and and their, their position in the world is very different. The thing that hasn't changed, of course, is that the U.S. corporate warfare state intends to rule the world. They're talking about the need for the need, mind you, for a pre-nuclear strike on China. You've been listening to historian and author Humphrey McQueen. Unfortunately, that was only part of a a much longer interview I recorded with Humphrey. Uh, Technical difficulties got in the way and only part of that interview was suitable for broadcast. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. Over the last two decades, China has been steadily building its influence in the South Pacific. Many perceive this expansion to be growing at a rate much faster than what could be considered a natural reflection of China's growing economic and geopolitical clout. This has left many analysts in the West to ask, what is China's ambition in the South Pacific and what risks does this create? In the past three years, China's footprint in the South Pacific has become so large and its behaviour in other parts of the world so much more assertive that alarm bells are starting to sound in capital cities of the South Pacific's traditional partners. That's typical of the anti-China rhetoric 
here in Australia and overseas. So today we're going to turn the tables and look at our own governments, past and present, and what they're up to in the Pacific. Joined by Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. Well, Australia has an extensive defence cooperation program throughout the Pacific Islands, and that's been happening since the 1960s, even while Australia was still a colonial power in the territory of Papua and New Guinea. Um, Australia had um, defence cooperation programs uh, established at that time, and those continue right throughout the Pacific Islands uh, and Southeast Asia, even extending to a certain extent to the Middle East. But we've seen uh, in recent times, because of uh, concern over strategic advances by China within the region, that Australia has really ramped up uh, military programs, and that's really a central part of what's been called the Pacific Step Up. You know, Malcolm Turnbull back in 2016 talked about the need for a, a step change in Australia's relations with the region, and when he cooed Turnbull, uh, Morrison took over as Prime Minister, Scott Morrison announced what's been dubbed the Pacific Step Up at uh, Laverack Army Barracks in Townsville. So uh, quite symbolically, and I don't think accidentally, the host barracks for the Ready Reaction Force that uh, operates throughout the Pacific um, was the site for this announcement about increased Australian engagement in the Pacific Islands through a a series of programs um, about uh, patrol boats, about uh, strengthening military facilities, about training, about intelligence uh, operations. Um, Australia really has quite extensive programs throughout the Pacific Islands. Well, let's go through some of those, Nick. Pacific's a big area. There's a lot of island states there. Which ones have they targeted? What we've seen, and this began with the Rudd government, the ALP government, 15 years ago, was an attempt to develop uh, security agreements with um, neighbouring Pacific Island countries. You know, there's been a lot in the media about the security agreement signed between China and Solomon Islands recently, but Australia has been working for, for a long time, firstly to establish security strengthening programs in Pacific Island countries, uh, secondly to develop what they call national security statements. So to get a, a statement, get you know Pacific Island governments to develop a formal statement to set out their security priority concerns, and that can be the basis then for uh, provision of uh, support from Australia. Uh, thirdly, you know, quite quite specific programs um, targeted at building up infrastructure, um, strengthening military bases, uh, marine facilities, port infrastructure, and so on around the region. The other central program that was created back in the days of the Howard government under Prime Minister John Howard in the 1990s was the Pacific Maritime Security Program. And this maritime security program basically involved the provision of patrol boats as well as infrastructure support and uh, the deployment of Royal Australian Navy training teams to Pacific Island countries, members of the Pacific Islands Forum. And that program has expanded over time. And today there are Royal Australian Navy training teams operating in 13 Forum Island countries. And what started with uh, the Howard era was the provision of patrol boats, um, which were used by uh, Pacific Island countries mainly for maritime surveillance, tracking down uh, illegal fishing within their vast exclusive economic zones. You know, Pacific governments have been very eager to stop illegal fishing and uh, to establish systems to get better revenues and royalties from the, 
the marine resources, particularly the tuna that they have. And so the patrol boats have been pretty warmly welcomed around the region. They were used uh, during that time, though, for more nefarious activities. For example, the patrol boat provided by Australia to Papua New Guinea was used uh, during the war on Bougainville during the 1990s with the patrol boat trying to uh, crack down on BRA rebels, the Bougainville Revolutionary Army rebels. So the patrol boats were armed and then used to uh, fire at villages, coastal villages um, in the the uh, pro-BRA areas of Bougainville. Similarly, the Australian-provided helicopters and patrol boats were used for a naval blockade in the narrow waters between Solomon Islands and Bougainville. Not only, uh, you know, uh, rebel forces like the BRA, but also humanitarian groups were using small canoes to run supplies across um, the very narrow waters between the west of the Solomon Islands and Bougainville uh, during this war where tens, uh, you know, some estimate 20,000 people died. And a lot of those were civilian casualties, particularly women, the loss of people with uh, no malarial drugs, people facing problems with maternal child health. And there was very courageous work by Bougainvillian nurses and uh, Sister Ruby Marinka uh, used to run medical supplies across uh, uh, the straits in canoes. And Australian supplied equipment, helicopters and patrol boats, were used by the Papua Guinea Defence Force to try and blockade uh, these uh, humanitarian supplies, as well as military operations by the BRA. So although, uh, the, as I say, the patrol boats have been very warmly welcomed over many years, they provided uh, strategic advantages for Australia, and the very fact of having Royal Australian Navy personnel, small training teams of a couple of people, located in every country of the region, gives Australia an unprecedented intelligence opportunity with basic knowledge about um, how systems work in, uh, in, in these countries. When you think, Nick, of how many years Australian, I don't know whether there are soldiers or police, spent in the Solomon Islands? Yeah, under Ramsey, Australian police and soldiers were uh, deployed to Solomon Islands for 14 years, between 2003 and 2017. Police were part of a, Australian Federal Police and also State Police were part of a what's called the Participating Police Force, which was um, also involving uh, people from uh, all Forum Island countries. Uh, you know, every, every member of the Pacific Island Forum sent uh, uh, police contingents, uh, some small, some large, to Ramsey, but it was very much an Australian-driven operation. The uh, deployment of Australian Defence Force personnel at the beginning was because there were still some armed militants uh, um, from the time of conflict in the in the uh, the period from 98 to 2003. But um, Australia, after some time and after the stabilisation of operations there, continued to deploy troops right through the, um, the period, the 14-year period. And indeed, it became a bit of an opportunity for Australia to put reservists through uh, jungle operations and forest operations. So, for example, in the latter part of Ramsey, there was no serious military threat facing the uh, the Ramsey forces, but Australia continued to deploy reserve troops through the Solomon Islands, and for much of the latter part of Ramsey, there weren't uh, regular uh, ADF forces there, but rather these reservists. And this was a way that Australian uh, reserve soldiers, who were only part-time warriors, could go and uh, uh, conduct operations in the field, so to speak. And indeed, there was advertising... Um, where uh, uh, the Defence Department took employers 
to the Solomon Islands to watch the reservists in action during little war games and military games and so on as a way of boosting recruitments to the reserves. And so they were, you know, they ran a specific program where employers could go to Solomon Islands uh, and see what being a reservist meant. And that was to encourage employers, big employers, big companies to allow their staff to take time off to participate in the Australian Reserve Forces. What about Fiji at the moment with BlackRock and Lamy? Well, one of the, the, the big things that's been happening is that Australia has um, been upgrading military facilities around the region in Pacific Island countries. The Pacific Maritime Security Program that I described before not only involves the provision of patrol boats and training staff, but also has a wharf infrastructure program. And that's specifically designed to improve keys, port infrastructure around the Pacific Islands region. And so we're funding and managing the upgrade of military bases and facilities in a number of countries. So there's a certain hysteria about Chinese military bases in the Pacific Islands, can I say of which there are none, (laughs) but there are a number of small and indeed growing uh, facilities around the region. And Australia has been funding and uh, providing contracts to companies to help with the physical infrastructure in these places. Uh, One of the biggest, as you mentioned, is the Black Rock Camp in Fiji. This is a military base for the Republic of Fiji Military Forces that is used um, to train people for humanitarian operations. And uh, it's a a, really key uh, place uh, that I think will be expanded over time. You know, seven Pacific Island countries, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Solomons, Timor, Tonga, Vanuatu, have all made contributions to United Nations policing and peacekeeping operations. Fiji particularly has a long track record going back decades of sending both police and uh, military personnel to um, uh, UN operations and is warmly welcomed. You know, Fiji in pure numbers, I think, is one of the largest contributors of peacekeepers in the world. And so Black Rock is seen as a training facility for um, uh, some of these operations. Uh, some people in Fiji, however, are worried that it's also about strengthening the Fiji military forces. And given the history and heritage of coups in Fiji, um, that's a, a matter of some debate. Uh, there's another, as you mentioned, at Lamy, which is a small suburban area just on the outskirts of the capital, uh, Suva. Uh, the Fiji Navy has been expanding es- uh, a services centre. There's uh, uh, been a long time uh, facility there for the small Fijian Navy, which has a number of patrol boats, um, some supplied by Australia. A couple of them have run onto the reef over time, so they're uh, always looking for, for new ones. And there's what's called the Maritime Essential Services Centre, which is a real upgrade of the naval facility uh, in Fiji. Once again, Australian funding through the Defence Corporation Program is a pretty important part of that. Um, the other big project, um, and one that uh, there's been a lot of call to expand, is in Papua New Guinea on Manus Island. People know the name of Manus because of the um, detention centre used for asylum seekers and refugees, now closed. But Manus is, uh, uh, has a significant deep water port. Uh, during World War II, for example, US forces used uh, uh, Manus uh, as a staging post in their operations, uh, heading northwards uh, from the southwest Pacific towards Japan. And so many people for a long time have eyed that deep water port 
PNG has a small patrol boat base there, uh, Lombrum, naval base. Lombrum's a small town on, on uh, the island of Manus. The, the United States and Australia, concerned about Chinese influence in Papua New Guinea, both offered to do an upgrade of Lombrum naval base. What we've seen, though, from a number of strategic think tanks like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the US Study Centre, <laughs> a whole range of American military people, is they'd really like to crank up Lombrum, not just as a base for small patrol boats for maritime surveillance and humanitarian work, but as a staging post for larger warships. That's a debate that's going to come. I think many Papua New Guineans are very wary of that idea, but um, it's certainly an ongoing call that uh, the current work that's being done at Lombrum to uh, improve the wharf facilities and so on for patrol boats uh, should be expanded to um, increase the opportunity for it to be used by uh, larger naval vessels and warships. Now, this is exactly what people accuse the Chinese of doing in Vanuatu and Solomons and other places, but this is, uh, this is work that's already underway in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. No plans for Nauru? No, Nauru is a difficult port environment. In fact, there's no uh, uh, easy access to Nauru because of the reef, and Nauru's a volcanic uh, um, outpost. But you see a lot of other work being done in other countries. And, and ironically, Solomon Islands, um, Australia is uh, currently constructing a small outpost in the west of Solomon Islands. What they've called the Border and Patrol Boat Outpost is, once again, a small facility for um, maritime patrol boats to be based in the west of the country. This is closer to uh, Bougainville, and I think uh, part of the strategic thinking of that is that over time, um, the autonomous Bougainville government is moving towards independence from Papua New Guinea. There's been a, um, a really strong showing of support in a referendum a couple of years ago where 97% of Bougainvillians voted in favour of independence, uh, negotiations are still going on between President uh, Toroama of Bougainville and the uh, newly re-elected Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, uh, James Marape. But I think the defence and strategic planners are thinking about what would happen if there's an independent Bougainville. And so the construction of this border and patrol boat outpost in the fairly isolated western part, west northwestern part of Solomon Islands, is a precursor to monitoring what happens. As I said, the island of Bougainville uh, and Booker to the north are, are contiguous to Solomon Islands. Culturally, ethnically, geographically, <laughs> uh, physically, Bougainville is really part of the Solomons archipelago rather than part of Papua New Guinea, which is why there's been such a strong independence movement going back to the 1970s in Bougainville. You know, people are looking ahead, however, with what an independent Bougainville will mean for maritime security in that area. Similarly, there's some work going on in Vanuatu. Vanuatu doesn't have an army. There's only really three armies in the Pacific Islands, Fiji, Papua New Guinea Defence Force, and the Tongan uh, Defence Forces. Vanuatu has more of a paramilitary police. They have a police force and uh, some paramilitary police components in that. They do have a patrol boat. And um, Australia, once again, is contributing to upgrading the uh, Republic of Vanuatu uh, patrol boat base at Mala in Vanuatu and also there's been a lot of work done uh, um, in recent years to improve facilities at the Cook and Tiroas barracks which is the um, barracks uh, on the main island of Ifate used by the Vanuatu uh, military forces. Now a lot of these operations are pretty simple, it's about fixing up war facilities, it's about constructing new 
barracks and buildings, some of which date back to the colonial days and were all falling down, you know, building new hospital facilities. One of the big things that's been done over the last decade or more, and this was very much driven by Ramsey, has been the construction of armouries. Back in 2000 in Solomon Islands, rebel people uh, broke into the armoury in Solomon Islands and a whole lot of high-powered rifles were taken by the Malaita Eagle Force and other, uh, other militias during the troubles in Solomon Islands. And so Australia really since that time, over the last couple of decades, has had a systematic program of building and maintaining stronger armouries that can store weapons across uh, the region. They haven't actually moved towards demilitarising the situation. They've just had better you know, armouries so that the state forces can maintain a monopoly on violence against militias that have grown up in uh, places like Bougainville, Solomon Islands and elsewhere. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR and I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. What does the membership of Quad mean for Australia in the Pacific? Part of it, these new uh, agreements align with the United States through the Quad, which links uh, four countries, the United States, Australia, Japan and India, and secondly, uh, AUKUS, obviously the new uh, partnership uh, between uh, Britain, Australia and the United States, means that there's an incredible effort to uh, further increase what they call interoperability and integration. Interoperability is where the, the forces can do a lot of work together, and that can be things as simple as coordinating radio networks so that you can talk to each other, and having similar protocols so ships don't run into each other. You know, it's a very practical things that, that navies and militaries do. Integration is more significant, which looks at ways in which uh, military forces by allied nations or partner nations can actually operate together under joint strategic command, under joint strategic direction. And certainly Australia has moved much more closely into integration with US forces rather than just simply interoperability, being able to work together without tripping over each other. And, you know, one of the features of the AUKUS partnership is that it really integrates Australia much further into American warfighting strategies, including nuclear warfighting strategies, hence the importance of the nuclear submarines that uh, people keep talking about but really aren't going to be uh, you know, in action until the never-never. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of effort into real-time intelligence operations. And that plays out in the Pacific in an interesting way. One of the things that the Morrison government did was to establish what's called the Pacific Fusion Centre. This is a facility that's designed to monitor regional security threats. And so the Fusion Centre was first established in Canberra in 2019, after a decision by leaders of the Pacific Islands Forum. It's now got a new facility opened earlier this year in Port Vila, Vanuatu. The role of the Pacific Fusion Centre is to collate, to analyse and to disseminate real-time intelligence assessments to Pacific governments, including Australia and New Zealand, and to regional agencies, including like the Forum Fisheries Agency. And there's a lot of amazing whiz-bang technology which allows um, the Fusion Centre, for example, to track yachts, fishing boats. This is a key issue for the Forum Fisheries Agency, monitoring uh, whether countries, uh, deep water fishing nations, are operating in their exclusive economic zones. It allows uh, police and customs to monitor yachts travelling across the Pacific 
which may be involved in drug smuggling or gun running. Uh, this is the, the sort of concerns. You know, the new facility has uh, a focus, a very broad mandate on areas like human security, environmental security, transnational crime, cybersecurity. And it's sort of an example where the intelligence world is blurring together. Now, many Pacific governments have welcomed, you know, having decent intelligence about, say, threats to their fisheries, but the mandate of this is much broader. As I say, it's looking at issues around crime, gun smuggling, about cybersecurity and so on. And um, it's a real step up of efforts by intelligence services as well to um, operate. You know, Australia's long had our technical agencies like uh, Geoscience Australia involved in um, actions that have military applications. So, for example, Geoscience Australia has and uh, the what's now called the Australian Signals Directorate. There's a, a body in Bendigo, the Australian Geodesic uh, Studies, have been doing work on um, mapping in the Pacific. And so, you know, just literally doing up very detailed maps about land and maritime areas, ports and, and so on. Now, that has obvious benefits for uh, host countries, but also has uh, benefits for um, the Australian military. And that's said quite explicitly um, in the, the programs. And these are Defence Department-funded programs where um, Australian intelligence agencies have been involved in mapping operations, providing the maps, obviously, to the host government, but uh, gaining the benefit of very detailed intelligence about neighbouring Pacific Island countries. Our government will say, of course, that this is all for humanitarian purposes, uh, to contribute to humanitarian operations to disaster reliefs. But it has obvious security and strategic implications as well at a time of geopolitical context and contest as we see today between the United States and China. And what does patching up the rift with France mean for Australia in the Pacific? Well, this has been uh, developing for some time um, under both Labor and Liberal government. Richard Miles, back in the days when he was Secretary of State for Pacific Island Affairs, was very much very closely tied to France in terms of developing a series of agreements in defence cooperation. The Australian governments, both Labor and Coalition, have given up any talk of decolonisation, of self-determination. They're really not supportive of the independence movements that are in French dependencies like New Caledonia or French Polynesia. And that was seen pretty closely with the Albanese government uh, as it came to power. One of the first visits that Prime Minister Albanese made was to Europe, and he visited Paris, went to the LSA Palace, and uh, met uh, President Macron. And they, uh, you know, put out a communique about uh, strengthening relations in the Indo-Pacific. And really, it was an opportunity for the AOP government to put the boots into Scott Morrison, because people remember that the AUKUS agreement in September 2021 was a real slap in the face to the French with the cancellation of the massive arms deal over the submarine contract with Naval Group. But it was also part of a broader, it really blew out of the water, a broader attempt to create uh, what President Macron called an India-Australia-France axis in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Macron gave a speech when he came to Australia in May 2018 about this idea of integrating India France and Australia and this was Macron's way I think of two purposes, one selling arms to India and Australia um, like Rafale fighters to India and submarines to Australia but secondly getting France's nose into the quad where India is part of the, the quad 
with Japan, Australia, and the United States. France not a member of the Quad, obviously. You know, at bureaucratic level, steadily over 2019, 2020, 2021, when the world was focused on the pandemic, um, Australian, French, and Indian officials were steadily building up their um, attempts to create strategic integration. And although they'd never say the word, just like in Harry Potter, you're not allowed to say Voldemort's name, so no one ever said this was directed against China, but everyone knows it is, of course. Certainly the people in Beijing know it is. And so you had uh, firstly meetings of officials, um, India, Australia, France, trilateral meeting of officials, defence and security officials. Then there was a ministerial meeting uh, in 2021 of... Um, Australian, Indian and French ministers, defence ministers. And the next step would have been a trilateral meeting of Macron, uh, Narendra Modi and Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Of course, as we know, that was blown out of the water, literally and figuratively, by the decision to sink the submarines and the submarine contract. The Labor government has worked very hard to rebuild the relations damaged by Scott Morrison. And that was clear in the communique put out by... uh, Prime Minister Albanese, uh, President Macron, after their meeting in uh, in Paris, um, you know, within a month of the election of the Labour government, where they reinstituted a lot of the strategic cooperation measures with the Australian Defence Force and the FANC, uh, the Force Armée en Nouvelle-Calédonie, the French Armed Forces, based in Namia, New Caledonia. There's uh, been uh, signed uh, a few years ago a mutual logistics support agreement between France and Australia, which allows Australian Defence Force units to operate in French ports, similarly French naval forces to use Australian port facilities, Um, and once again, intelligence and uh, training cooperation. Australia deployed, the Australian Defence Force deployed a naval attaché in the Consulate General in Namia in 2021. So this is not a defence attaché in the embassy in Paris, but it's a specific Australian Defence Force liaison officer uh, who's based in Namia in the Australian Consulate General there, whose job is to liaise with the French armed forces that have uh, headquarters both in Namia and their naval people are headquartered in Papieti and Tahiti. Once again, you know, there's this attempt at interoperability, working together on joint operations, and uh, some of those are for good purposes. So French officials led the task force um, between Australia, New Zealand, France, United States in response to the uh, disaster of the volcano that erupted in Tonga, you know, enormous volcanic eruption that caused enormous humanitarian disruption. But, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword. And what, uh, you know, is prioritised as humanitarian disaster response, and that's in all the PR from the Defence Forces, of course, also has broader strategic roles. And as we know today, uh, this is about focusing on China. Finally, Nick, what you've been talking about for the last while is government-to-government decisions. What about the grassroots, not only in the Pacific, but also in Australia, of having any say in what's happening? Well, this is a real problem, that um, what we're seeing is within this broad Indo-Pacific framing that is very much the language now of uh, the strategic think tanks and, and so on. Australia has created an Australia Pacific Security College at the Australian National University, which is doing a lot of work on all of these things that I've talked about today. So Indo-Pacific is the new framing, and it's not just community groups and churches and uh, political groups in in the Pacific, but even governments have raised concern that the framing of the Indo-Pacific 
sort of privileges Indo above Pacific. Former Prime Minister of Samoa, Tui Lapa, said uh, some years ago that they were very concerned that Pacific priorities and agendas are not getting the same attention from the countries we've been talking about, Australia, France, United States, uh, United Kingdom and so on, that are required. And Pacific Island governments, um, including those like Fiji that are you know, having all this Australian military support, are very clear that the greatest security threat that they face is not China, although they're worried about China, but it's, it's climate change. And they want to see resources pumped into the response to climate change and all the manifest dangers uh, that come from uh, the climate emergency, which is the greatest security threat to the livelihoods, well-being, security of Pacific peoples. Now, that's in the Boy Declaration signed uh, in 2018 by all forum leaders, including Australia. And one of the anger that you see from Pacific Island countries is that Australia hasn't put the resources into addressing this greatest single security threat that they put into these other areas. There's a lot of concern, therefore, amongst some governments, uh, certainly many politicians and most civil society groups, that um, the prioritisation given to Indo-Pacific strategic work really damages other areas. Thus, for example, Australia's close strategic and military cooperation with France goes against the interests of, say, the independence movement in New Caledonia, who are calling for the withdrawal of French forces and the demilitarisation of New Caledonia as they transition to a new political status. And they see the French army, and remember the days in the 1980s when the French army was deployed to put down the independence movement, including culminating in the Uvea massacre in May 1988. Memories are still there of those times where the French army was not involved in humanitarian operations in New Caledonia, but in wartime operations. They used the French army within New Caledonia, which caused many worries about French jurists that, you know, <laughs> that's supposed to be a policing operation, but the army was deployed against people who were supposedly French citizens. So when they see Australia cozying up to the French, when they hear Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles say France is a Pacific country, um, they worry because, you know, most people in the Pacific say, hang on, France is a European country. It's a colonial power in the Pacific. It has dependencies in the Pacific, but those are recognised by the United Nations as what they term non-self-governing territories. And we've talked on this program many times. These are colonies. These, you know, and the UN Special Committee on Decolonisation is working to get France to meet its obligations towards decolonisation. And one of those, based on UN resolutions, not to have military bases in non-self-governing territories. So the United States, France are in breach of UN resolutions on demilitarising their colonies. Now Australia is building up its ties with France. There's a clear contradiction there, and that's widely seen. The other central contradiction at the moment is, of course, around nuclear weapons. Um, we've talked in the program before about uh, Australia's decision to purchase nuclear submarines, possibly in breach of key provisions of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, is causing a lot of concern about countries in our, our neighbouring region, not only in the Pacific Islands, which are, are deeply anti-nuclear because of the experience of nuclear testing in the cold, last Cold War, but also in countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, who are worried that um, Australia, as a non-nuclear state, a country without nuclear weapons or a nuclear power industry, is going to be expanding its nuclear profile. And so countries like Indonesia, like Fiji and others, have publicly expressed their concern about um, AUKUS and the nuclear submarines. 
and this is a battle that's going to play out. Um, once again, uh, you know, Richard Miles, as Defence Minister in the ALP government, is very much supportive of uh, uh, this program. And within, uh, you know, six months or so, there's going to be announcements about the future of the submarine program. And this is closely monitored by uh, people around the region who see Australia once again heading in the wrong direction, be it around uh, coal and uh, climate issues, be it around nuclear weapons and disarmament, uh, the right to self-determination and decolonisation, even though uh, the new Albanese government has been warmly welcomed by many, simply because Albanese is not Scott Morrison and has made some climate commitments uh, a step in the right direction in this area, there's still a lot of concern that other areas of Australian foreign policy related to this broader strategic competition with China still dominate policy-making in Canberra. And so these, these issues will play out in coming months and years. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, as always, Jan. Uh, happy to talk and uh, look forward to speaking again. Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, and as you would have gathered, an expert on the Pacific. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.